Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. for a while, uh, or if this is your first time visiting, uh, we as a church are in a series at the moment called, uh, well, a year-long theme really, looking at this idea of pilgrimage, um, but we're in this series at the moment called On the Road, which is um, sitting within that theme of pilgrimage, and I'm um, really looking at different stories, particularly in the Gospels, but, but throughout all of Scripture, um, and looking at how that plays into the narrative of pilgrimage. What does it look like to have a faith unfolding um, on a journey that we are on? And so we are moving through um, all these different stories. Everyone who has been contributing um, has been kind of tapping into some stories that mean something to them a little bit and, and looking to sort of draw the gold out of that. And tonight, uh, I want to take you into a message that I've called Starting Over Again, A Pilgrim's Reconsideration of Virtue and Belief. Um, well, first of all, uh, why, why reconsideration and why my little, uh, my little brackets there? Well, first of all, um, for me, this is a, is a consideration because uh, it's something of a new thought. It's, it's some, some new thinking that I've just been kind of wrestling with a little bit. Um, but it's also a reconsideration because it's, it's taking me back into some of the things that I perhaps assumed or thought I knew all along. Um, and, I'm start, and some of the things maybe that I've, that I've wrestled with. Uh, and it's starting to uh, help me uh, articulate some things that, that have felt uh, very natural and intrinsic to me, but, but perhaps that I didn't have the words for, so I'm starting to be able to wrap a bit of language around them a little bit. And so I'm sitting in this sort of like, it's a new thing, it's not really that new, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, but I'm thinking about it. Hence us sitting in this interesting reconsideration. And because I guess I am a pilgrim, like all of us, uh, this is my, me as a pilgrim, my reconsideration of these concepts of virtue and belief. And um, I guess my dear hope is that uh, there would be something in it for all of us this evening. Um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going we're gonna to look at the disciples just a little bit, thinking about essentially their whole time uh, with Jesus as a pilgrimage uh, of sorts. But in particular, I want to look at, uh, a little bit at the story of Peter and honing in on, on the very beginning of the disciples' journey and the very end of the disciples' journey, and then unpack some thoughts around that as well. So why don't you just um, let me pray, and then we'll move from, move from there. So Lord, we just want to um, take this moment to, to still ourselves a, a little bit before you, to take a moment uh, to become aware of your presence, of your, your love for us, to become aware of your grace and your peace, to become aware of your nearness. And Lord, we just know that you uh, meet each and every one of us on our journeys, that you uh, take great delight in journeying with us um, ever forward. That in the moments of doubt and insecurity and in the moments of discovery and joy, Lord, that you are there in equal parts. 
And tonight, Lord, as we wrestle with the idea perhaps of um, coming back to square one, um, Lord, we just ask that you, uh, that we would know your closeness in that space. Amen. So in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4, uh, the disciples' journey starts really with an invitation that is extended to them uh, by Jesus. Um, <clears throat> uh, and we're going to focus, like I said, on Peter just a little bit. So while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they let uh, left their nets, and they followed him. This sort of amazing thing, I mean, I, I think over the years I've probably put this scripture up a fair few times um, on the slides and have sort of remarked, I think, at the disciples' willingness to just drop everything, to walk away from their lives and their livelihood to follow this man. We find ourselves, I think, in this moment um, stepping into and maybe being able to understand a little bit of the rabbinic tradition, this idea of of, of moving towards uh, the teachings and the lives of a rabbi. For those who may not be uh, familiar with it that much, um, typically in, this, in the sort of first century Jewish culture, if you were a, a, a young boy, you would, you would start from a very young age learning the Torah. And effectively, like the, 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 the position, I guess, of rabbi was the most desirable thing in all of, in all of culture. I guess it was kind of like I don't know what's desirable now, being like a really big TikTok influencer or something, you know? It's, it's, there was, it was this position of aspiration. It was, thing, it was some, someone that you looked to in society. And so all young boys would sort of start the journey of learning and they would, they would look to learn Torah and then just, you know, if you know the story, how it goes, eventually, you know, kids would just be, not be good enough and they'll eventually all drop off and then they would either return to their family businesses or find some other way of making a living in the world. But for the best of the best of the best of the best, they they would get to follow a rabbi. And a rabbi would have some sort of yoke. They would be, the, these students, these disciples, these apprentices would be invited to, to take on the yoke of the rabbi that they were following. Um, now that yoke would be some sort of, of worldview, a particular way of engaging with the sacred texts. Um, the rabbis had this sort of remarkable freedom. If you ever got to that position, you were the ones who were able to, um, to uh, I guess, like take liberty with the text, to really press into it, to, to sort of draw new things out of it. And so different rabbis would, would effectively have, diff have different worldviews or, or would be looking to emphasize very specific things from the text. And so as a young, as a, as a young disciple, you would, you would look to take on the yoke of the rabbi that you would follow. But here's the thing, if you, if you were able to go on that journey for a number of years and you took on that yoke and you began to walk sort of slow, so closely behind your rabbi, eventually if you got to the position of rabbi, you would then have this sort of, this invitation and this opportunity to yourself shape and form your own yoke. The invitation to follow a rabbi was an invitation to growth. It was an invitation to, to grow in character, to grow in integrity, to grow in wisdom, to grow in knowledge. It was an invitation to growth. That is what we're seeing happen 
in that story, Matthew 4, it's the very beginning. It's that, that invitation that is extended to these first disciples. We're talking about men who never made the cut, as, or young men who never made the cut as young boys. They were never going to get that opportunity. They were never going to be able to walk that path. And yet here Jesus comes walking along the shore, sees these, sees these you know, young men, probably teenagers at the time, and says, hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And so this presents them with too big of an opportunity. We are going to follow this rabbi and we are going to walk. We're going to walk in his dust. We're going to walk in his footsteps and we are going to grow uh, in following him. And so for three years, if you've spent time in the Gospels, you will see all of these different stories from different perspectives. Phenomenal stories, stories of, of healing, stories of, of grace, um, stories of miracles. These are the things that we see. We see this incredible work that Jesus does as he moves from town to town. And we see the way that he engages with his disciples, always asking questions. You know, I love that out of like the 120 statements we have of Jesus, like over 90 of them are like questions, you know? So someone would ask a question, and he would engage. He was in dialogue with them all the time because that's what a good rabbi did, you know? Like at, in the sort of like strictest, most basic way possible, I think Jesus was just like a good rabbi, you know, like by any sort of metric. And so people would, uh, you, you know, he would just engage with them on that level, always stretching, challenging, imploring people to think about that on a deeper level. And so we have these stories of, of, you know, these disciples for three years or so, walking with him, journeying with him, growing um, in him. And then uh, as, as things begin to unravel, uh, as they get closer and closer to the final Passover, as they get closer and closer to the crucifixion, we see some things really fall apart. And in John chapter 18 in particular, we, you know, coming back to this, this sort of very rambunctious young man, Peter, who you know, left his family business, ditched the whole fishing industry, decided to you know, go and follow this Jesus. And he does kinds of crazy things. I've always loved Matthew 14, where he hops out of the boat you know, and just tries to walk for just a little bit. You know, he's always, he's always kind of really out there. But in John chapter 18, he has this moment of, 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 you know, his whole world kind of beginning to collapse around him. And so when people start to say, hey, aren't you, weren't you one of the guys that was with Jesus? He's like, no, 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 not me. I have nothing to do with this. So he begins to deny this thing. I don't want any part of this story. I'm out. I'm tapping out. No, thank you. Not for me. And so then we find ourselves on the other end of the death of Jesus, we find ourselves in this situation. And I want to take you into uh, John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 to 19. Now it says this. So this is just after the resurrection. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, um, <clears throat> yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. 
for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Um, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Whew. A lot of text to get through, I know, but for me, I think it's just quite a beautiful story. There's a couple things going on in there that I think are, are very powerful. Um, <clears throat> the first thing that sort of stands out to me about this is that, is that the disciples, in the wake of the death of Jesus, they end up back where they started, back at square one, uh, kind of somewhat dejected, you know? Everything that they had sort of put their faith in, their belief in, had begun to fall apart. Um, this is a complete failure in the belief system, particularly if we're going to stick with, with Peter a little bit. This is a failure in his belief system. We see him through the Gospels, you know, um, almost like incredibly excited about this, this truth that lays out in front. And, you know, you see in parts of it these little arguments that the disciples have about who's going to get to sit at the right hand of Jesus when he takes the throne in Jerusalem. You know, they've got this very particular idea of who Jesus is and what he's going to do in the world, of what his sort of messianic outworking is going to look like in a very sort of literal, um, social, political um, sense. You know, they're believing that he's going to do this thing in a very particular way. And so this is a failure of that belief system. The belief that they had in Jesus around that is is gone. Um, You know, there's the quite literal thing of like, well, God dies, So God dies for Peter. This is the belief thing that falls apart. And so, and so you can imagine, you know, I think back to that sort of denial that happens um, in John chapter 18, that there is, uh, in the wake of that, there's sort of this shame of the denial. Um, there's still like a sense of anger, a little bit of fear and uncertainty about what is to come, um, a sort of deep sense of disappointment amongst uh, the disciples. And then we see in this chapter that they just completely regress to their old way of being. It's like, they've, it's like they've missed something. You know, I'm talking here about a failure in the belief system. When I'm talking about belief, I'm talking about, you know, the, the opinions or the convictions or the confidence that we have um, in a truth or existence of something not immediately susceptible to rigorous proof. There's this, this sort of deep anchoring, like in, in, in the sort of Greek sense, it's, it's, it's 
Belief is essentially like an anchor within us. It's the thing that we sort of build ourselves on. It's the, the first cornerstone or something like that. But belief is, is so often susceptible to, to breaking down in some, sort of, in some sort of way. You know, there are these words that are sort of thrown around in the church at the moment. Often people talk about this idea of deconstruction, um, you know, which sort of depending on, on where you're sitting, some people feel like they're very much in that place. Others feel like it's a kind of scary thing or it's just a, a great way of pointing a finger at someone and saying, hey, they're actually not a Christian or something like that. But really what we're talking about, when that happens, when there is an instance of deconstruction, we're talking about, you know, the fundamental box within which God was operating and operating successfully for that person in their life has, has fallen apart. Some sort of trauma um, or some sort of pain or some sort of grief, uh, some sort of experience has, uh, has cracked, has damaged the foundation upon which those, those fundamental beliefs are built. And so for Peter here, we see clear as day that there is a failure in the belief system upon which he was putting all his trust for all the disciples. And so when you've left your world behind, when you've said goodbye to your family and you've spent years traveling with this person with a particular idea of what's going to happen, and then suddenly that person almost very easily seems to just be arrested, tried, convicted, killed, and, and buried, it's like, well, there goes... It's not just my God and my king and my friend and my teacher and my rabbi. It's my, my future. It's my, my hope. It's my optimism. It's, you know, for, for myself, for my, for, my, for my nation. All of that just uh, dies right in front of him. And so as I've sort of considered this and looked at the story a little bit, um, I sort of have found myself thinking a little bit, is... Is belief um, a, a particularly helpful thing for us to be anchored in if it is susceptible to breaking down quite easily? If there are things that happen that shape those, shake those convictions fully apart, is there a better way of thinking about this? And this got me thinking about this whole idea of virtue a little bit. Virtue is this idea of, of conformity of one's life and conduct to moral and ethical principles, uprightness, rectitude. What we're talking about when we talk about virtue in the context of Christianity, in the context of being a follower of Jesus, is this really simple idea of what it really means to be an apprentice, which is to practice the way of Christ. We've spoken about this many times um, before, but the way of following Jesus is, is simply this, or of really following any rabbi. The invitation of the rabbi, like I was saying before, was to come and learn, come and grow. It was to really follow three sorts of steps, come and be with the rabbi, become like the rabbi, do what the rabbi did. And then go and do greater things. After that, Jesus' thing, the way of practicing the way of Jesus. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. There is this invitation to sort of personal growth and personal challenge. And I stumbled across this quote in a book recently by a psychologist, um, which I know can be like a scary thing to like bring into church sometimes, but hey, let's just go there. Um, Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist, says this. He goes, virtue is a better indicator of human capacity for growth than belief. What does he mean by that? Um, 
Effectively, what he's saying is that when you are able to anchor yourselves in, in virtues, you can always kind of grow in those areas. When you make definitive statements, you aren't open to the possibility of learning. You aren't open to the possibility of discovering something more. So even if you sort of anchor yourself, and you know, this is not to sort of say we shouldn't have sort of firm convictions, like the idea of, I don't know, God is love. That's a powerful statement. It's a powerful belief. You know, it's something that I hold to. But... There's, there's also got to be the space and the scope for growth, a, 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 an ability to wrestle with what that means. And so you want to be able to have experiences in your life. You want to be able to sort of spend time or, or over your lifetime be able to, to learn about, you know, um, how much bigger, how much wider, how much deeper the love of God is. You know, there's, there's a need to sort of grow. And so when we're invited to, to follow Jesus, we're, we're to look, I think, at the, at the hospitality, the generosity, the justice, the grace, the compassion, these, these virtues that can be anchored, um, anchored into our souls and that regardless of what happens, we can continue to keep growing in them. Because often what happens I think in the, uh, you know, I think I've seen this a lot, particularly like in, in, in the younger generations coming through, is that very quickly the beliefs that are presented to people in the church begin to experience some sort of dissonance with reality, and very quickly the, the sort of structures upon which faith or the institution of church are built, they very quickly crumble away, and people are kind of left with nothing. And it becomes very easy to put church and God and Jesus, and faith, and all that kind of stuff in the same box, and send it off to the op shop and say, it's just too complex. I think that there's, there's a returning that needs to happen. There needs to be some sort of starting over again. Um, <clears throat> I've been like playing a bit of Xbox lately, just to like kind of like lighten it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> I've dug up an old game because I was getting my ass schooled on FIFA. I was getting absolutely beaten on FIFA. All of these like 15-year-old kids who just took me to town every time. So I was like, I'm not playing FIFA anymore. So I went back to a game from 2010, Skate 3. Any fans? All right, a couple of fans, yeah. Um, There's like all these challenges you have to do. um, And I was just thinking to myself like how, how repetitive it is because you're just trying to do one thing, but it's like quite hard to do the one thing. So you just over and over, you, it just drops you in the same spot and you've got to try and do this trick. And, you, and I would just keep doing it. And it's like, I spent like an hour and 20 minutes the other day just trying to do like one thing. But, but after about like, I don't know, an hour and 19 minutes, I was like, I've tried the exact same thing. Like, Every single time for the last like hour and 19 minutes. What if I tried to like, this is a bit boring, but like what if I tried to like hit the trick from this part of the ramp instead of this part of the ramp? And then it was like straight away I like completed the challenge. It was like, oh my goodness, I've just been trying to do the exact same thing over and over again and expecting the same result. I think this is something that we come up uh, a little bit in the church. We tend to sort of have these sort of statements of, uh, of belief, these, this, this sort of list of things that, that just are supposed to be. And then when we come to these moments of, I don't know, repentance or sort of returning to God, we find ourselves maybe similar to Peter in a moment where, you know, our, uh, our beliefs have been torn apart, where we don't really know what's kind of going on. We find ourselves back quite literally at square one, um, and we don't really know what to do. We find ourselves, you know, 
kind of just returning to those things and going, okay, I'm just going to reiterate those things again. If we do. Some people, some people are trying to do the old Xbox games. They just, they just quit or, you know, chuck another game in and just move on. Often I think the tendency is to just, if we, if we do feel like keep going back to it, we're just going to keep trying to do the same thing again. And so then part of the reconsidering, I think, for me, is to also reconsider the idea of repentance. Repentance. Uh, in, uh, in Mark 1.15, I think it is, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and see. And so he's inviting people to, to, to turn from their lives, to turn their sort of whole selves and orient themselves towards this new story. And this word repentance is this idea, this Greek idea of metanoia, which, which sort of quite literally means a, a transformation of the mind, a new way of engaging with the world, a new way of thinking about things. Um, and so... Often I think that when we, when we talk about repentance, and we're talking about it sort of in the context of sin, and that's like a whole nother conversation, um, we often sort of think of repentance as this quite like sort of spiritual transactional moment um, that, we, that we sort of, you know, declare, you know, these beliefs, what we want to believe again. Okay, God, I'm going to come back to this thing. I believe you're going to do this thing for me. I believe you're going to do this. And then, and then we'll just kind of kick off again. We'll, we'll kind of go from there. Um, <clears throat> but actually what I want to say is that, that and, and sort of argue for, is that the, the invitation to, repent, to repentance is also an invitation to consciously and cognitively, you know, seek to wire new neural pathways through commitment to practice and investment in virtues. We're talking about like a, a, not just a sort of spiritual transformation of, of the mind and of the heart, but a very literal one as well. Um, we sort of know from psychology that if you, if you seek to form a new habit, if you, if you seek to, you know, if you spend, I think it is 27 days, you know, deciding to, whether it's read your Bible or to, to, to buy people coffees or to do whatever, investing in some sort of, in some sort of um, new discipline, eventually it will become a habit after 27 days. That's... That's just because your, your brain is effectively starting to rebuild new neural pathways, kind of like motorways on your brain. So what, what was once a sort of gravel path becomes a six-lane motorway. It becomes much easier for neurons to travel down. It's this, it's this quite amazing science, really. And so we're talking about this idea of metanoia, the transformation of the mind, that when we choose some virtues to invest in, when we look at the character and person of Jesus, um, that we are, we are invited to be with him, to become with him. So to look for the things that he does and his character and the way he, he, he lives and look to model that and embrace that and move towards that. So this literal transformation begins to sort of happen in tandem with the symbolic and the spiritual. And so I want to say this belief is powerful because I think it gives an indicator of our identity. I think that I'm, I'm not dismissing the concept of belief. It's, it's good to know what our beliefs are. I think they can give an indicator of, of, of our identity. But it does not speak to the, to the notion of character. So belief can be an indicator of an identity, but it does not speak to the notion of character. We can say what we believe all we want, but that, 
But that doesn't impact like how we actually live. It's the things we do, the way we participate in the world, the way we move towards others, the way we, the way we pursue justice, the way we embody humility, the way we, we move towards wisdom. Those are the things that people notice. Those are the things that change the world around us, not what we say we believe. And so the invitation... Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. To, to, to look for the things in the person of Christ, in Christ, and, look, and, and sort of wrestle with, with that and look to move and grow towards him. And so finally, we can reconsider this idea of invitation. That um, large chunk of scripture I read, there's a few interesting things that happen, and so... We find these disciples back at their sort of, you know, back in their old life, just sort of plunging themselves back into what they used to know. And then there's this sort of, there's this sort of miraculous haul of fish, which I think is, is quite cool. We get a few interesting bits of information. Like, you know, sometimes the Bible's really light on stuff, and then sometimes it's really specific. You know, like Peter decides to put on his, his outer garment. Like, that's an that's a oddly specific thing. And if anyone's got, like, the deep theology around why we had to know that, that would be good to know. Um, <clears throat> but so we see this sort of interesting thing. But then we have this sort of interesting moment with, with Jesus and Peter where there is this, this sort of quite, quite redeeming element where we know that Peter denied Jesus three times in John 18, and then in John 21, there's this moment of returning to the kind of core story. You know, Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, you know I do. Well, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know I do. Well, then tend to my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know, I'm so agitated. Why would you keep asking me that? But, you know, it's like, if, if you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can look at that verse. But for me, what I got from it this week was like, do the mahi. Do the mahi. If you're going to be about this, do you love me? Do the work. Put others first. Look for need. Look for where there's opportunity to love. Look for where there's a need to extend justice and grace and compassion and generosity to exercise virtue. Do the mahi. And yes, it's agitating. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's like, because it's, it's kind of always got to be done. But that is the challenge, and that is the invitation. And so to me, like as I was sort of sitting with that text uh, a little over the last few days, it was, it was just this, this way of like Jesus kind of hammering it home. Just keep doing it. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Every interaction was a movement towards the other. Every interaction was a movement towards justice and grace and generosity and hospitality. All of that. Every interaction was an acting out of virtue. And virtue is wonderful because it's not capped. We can always grow in it. It's not finite. It's not sort of bound by a set of things. We can always grow in those things. And then he finishes to Peter with the same words he, 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 he offered to Peter right at the very beginning. Follow me. Keep following me. Don't ever stop. Always submitted to the way of Christ. And so we reconsider the invitation. And so with that, um, I'd like to draw us to something of a close. 
And um, I wonder if I could just invite us all to stand. And um, I would just love to pray for a few moments, if that is all right. Do you want to give me some keys as well? Yeah. Just the Holy Spirit pad. Just whatever that button is. <laughs> um, it's more just to help me, really. Um, Holy Spirit, I uh, ask you that you would come and, and move with grace in each one of us. And Lord, I pray that you would grant uh, even me just grace and wisdom because... not really my desire to to rock the boat or offer things that are sort of too outside the box but but Lord I know that you desire for for us to follow you to grow in you to grow closer to you and Lord I don't want to fear being being challenged or being stretched I don't want to fear being uncomfortable Lord because I trust that you are bigger than all of those things that you transcend all of that and Lord I would ask that you would come and meet meet each and every one of us this evening come and meet us in our fears and in our doubts and in our insecurities and in our frustrations and in our angers and in our um, joys and in our delights. Maybe even in our indifference, in our ordinariness, in the sort of, in the unspectacular, in the mundane. Wherever we're at, Lord, would you come and meet us? want to just draw your attention to the slide up there that's a, a little piece of artwork by uh, Scott Erickson and uh, it's an image that stuck with me for a few years and it's just the open hand of Christ the extending of the invitation to come follow me fitting that my last slide really not intentional but is just to to consider or to reconsider invitation and so just in this moment, I want to invite you to just have, have a minute to yourself and consider the invitation of Christ to follow. And consider where he may be looking to stretch or to grow or to challenge.
And as we slowly draw to a close, I want to invite you to consider what are the things that you carry with you? What are the virtues that matter? What are the things you are learning from Jesus? Not interested in statement of, statements of belief. Not interested in your atonement theory or, um, you know, how salvation works or eschatology or any of that stuff. In the, in the person of Jesus, in Christ, What are you drawn to? What are you challenged by? And what are you longing to spend your life growing in? What will never leave even on, even on the darkest days? Even on the days where it feels like God doesn't exist or God has let you down. What remains? What are you still compelled by? What do you still long to grow in? Lord, I pray that you would help us to hopefully and optimistically always look for your outstretched hand. Would we always hear your gentle, loving, sometimes firm, but always gracious invitation to follow. And in that following to discover, to grow and to be shaped of the image bearer you call us to be. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for thank you for being here this evening. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.